Our text this afternoon is Revelation 11, the verses 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 55, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, One of the last things that Jesus did before he ascended into heaven was to give us the Great Commission. That means he commissioned or he ordered the church to bring the gospel to the world. Now we read at the end of Revelation 10 that John is commissioned or recommissioned to bring that gospel. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And that recommissioning extends to us all. John has made clear from the outset of Revelation that we are his fellow servants, and we are a kingdom of priests to God. The commission is extended to us today, get the gospel out into the world. One of the striking things about mission work and evangelization is that it prospers even in the time of persecution. There is an expression, you can't keep a good man down. But you can also say, you can't keep a good Christian down. If you are filled with the hope, with the joy of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, wild horses couldn't draw you back from sharing the gospel wherever, whenever you get the opportunity. Even when the persecution is quite severe. We see many of examples of that in history. We think of the mid-1500s when Spain ruled the lowlands, modern-day Netherlands and Belgium. The Spanish government made very clear, if you own a Bible, if you talk about the Bible, if you go to a Bible study, you'll be killed. Tens of thousands of Christians died in those days simply for having a Bible or opening it up and talking about it. In a little town called Dornick, which is close to the French border, border, there was a preacher who went by the name Jerome. Nobody knew his real name, and nobody knew where he lived. But Jerome preached in an underground church, and although people came there risking their lives, they kept coming, and more and more people came to study the Word of God and to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This church grew. Evangelization was fantastic, although people were threatened with death. Things went well until the young people wanted to bring this out into the open, into the streets, and they started to sing psalms, and then the Roman Catholic government cracked down. Jerome had to run, but eventually he was caught, and he was executed. He became a martyr. He was hung. And by then they discovered his real name, and it was Guido de Bret, who left us with the Belgic Confession. His work prospered in the face of terrible persecution, and you simply couldn't stop the spread of the gospel. The same is true today. 
John was told, take that little scroll and eat it. That means take the gospel and take it to heart. Internalize it. It will be sweet in your mouth because you will know the joy of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but it will be sour in your belly because when you stand up for Jesus, you will be persecuted. Well, brothers and sisters, the belly of our world is sour and it is bitter. Our modern-day Canadian culture is very, very much opposed to Christianity. It's not just neutral. It's not just indifferent. It doesn't just joke about Christianity. But the modern, the modern age of 2007, Christianity is taking a direct hit and being blamed for many of the ills of society. Christians are under attack in a way that we haven't known for a long time. Makes you wonder, is there still room for evangelization? Is it still possible to evangelize in Edmonton, in Canada? Does it even make any sense to do so? Well, that's the question that is being answered in our text this afternoon. It's being answered with a great sense of urgency. Chapter 10 says there will be no more delay. Christ is coming. He could come at any time. This world will end as we know it. So seize the day. Spread the gospel. And do you think you're able to do it under the present conditions? Well, listen to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which we summarize in this way. Jesus Christ zealously guards his church in the midst of a hostile world. And we will see that there is opportunity for evangelization because the church is protected and even though unbelievers trample relentlessly. We look at verse 1 of our text. I was given a reed like a measuring rod. I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. If your initial reaction was, what in the world does this mean? Well, join the club. Because there have been a lot of people who have thrown their hands up in despair at this passage and just muttered, forget about it. And let's move on to the next part, that interesting part about the two witnesses who are killed and who lie in the streets. But we cannot ignore it. It's the Word of God. And it's the key to addressing the question, are we able to evangelize yes or no? So you have to look at this passage and look at it carefully. First thing you notice is that the person who's interacting with John is not in any way identified because it's the same person who has been dealing with John in chapter 10. And that might be an angel, but ultimately it is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christ has said to John, Christ has said to the church, get out there and evangelize. And then he says, or he he gives John a a measuring rod. Measuring rod in today's terms would be a tape measure, but not a cheap one. Good quality tape measure. Name brand, strong, you, you can measure a whole big building with this amazing tape measure. This measuring rod is a sturdy instrument, accurate instrument for measuring. And John is told you are to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. Unfortunately, in the NIV, it says count the worshipers. But in the original Greek, it says simply measure the temple, the altar, 
and the worshipers. It's very important because in the Old Testament, to measure has a special spiritual significance. Many occasions in the Old Testament, when God says, measure something off, what he's saying is, cordon it off. You don't mark it all out. Measure this whole area, and everything in it is mine. Under my protection, nobody, nothing gets in on my property, on my turf, and on my place. I'll give a couple of examples. In Jeremiah 31, we read, The days are coming when this city will be rebuilt for me. The measuring line will stretch. It will all be holy to the Lord. This city will never again be uprooted or demolished. What God measures out will never be attacked or demolished again. Then there's Zechariah 2. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Jerusalem will be a city without walls, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. So when God measures out Jerusalem, he says, this is mine. And in a way, the line that's measured around it is invisible. And yet God says, I am the fire around my people. I am a wall of fire. Nobody penetrates. Nobody attacks what belongs to me and is protected by me. You, think, you can think a little bit here of when you're in a museum or maybe an old castle, maybe in Europe somewhere. There's some roped-off areas. You're not to go into those roped-off areas. That's private. Maybe someone's even living there. It's their private quarters. Similarity, when God says, when I rope off an area, that's mine. and Nobody passes it without my permission. I put a rope around my people, a wall of fire, and they are safe. So we say to ourselves, I think that I am getting this text. I think, I think we're onto something here. But there's something else. Our text has, as an Old Testament parallel, Ezekiel 40 through 48. And we read part of that together. The measuring off of the temple. But what's really important is to notice that God says, you are to measure off the temple to protect my people from something specific. We read that in chapter 43. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. So when we read here about protection, we're not talking about protection from sword or spear or disease or accidents. We are talking about spiritual eternal protection. God says, I mark off my people. I protect them. I don't want prostitution here. I don't want immorality here. I don't want idolatry here. Because here, my people, their souls are safe to live to the praise and the glory of God. Now, ultimately, we know that that temple of Ezekiel is the temple of the future. The eschatological temple. That means the temple of the new heavens and the new earth. But it already indicates that here in this world, we may begin to live safe from God and be free from the power of sin in the attacks of the evil one. So now we get back to our text and we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is very specific to John when he says, measure off the temple, the altar, 
and the worshipers. This is very visual to us. We can all picture this. Whether you think of Solomon's Old Testament temple or the temple that was rebuilt by Herod and where Jesus attended in his day, we can picture this. We can picture the temple with the altars and the people of Israel going into it. So it's very visual, very clear. We wonder, though, was John ordered to go to the literal temple in Jerusalem and measure that? Now, that would seem to be a problem. Our understanding of the book of Revelation is that it was written in 95 A.D., roughly, which means by then the temple had been destroyed for 25 years. But even even if you said, no, Revelation was, was written before 70 A.D., and you are entitled to that opinion, that's fine if that's your opinion and you can work with it, Even then, we know that John was on the island of Patmos and he was in a vision. We're not reading here that John was literally picked up, brought to Jerusalem, to the literal temple, but he was in a vision. And there he saw a temple. So we can use the Old Testament temple, the temple in Jerusalem, to help picture all this, but we're talking about something else than that building of stone and of wood. You know, in the Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle was basically a prophecy, a prediction of something that was better yet to come. God came to dwell among his people, beautiful, but he held them somewhat at arm's length. There was a veil, and nobody could get in there except the high priest once per year. But God says, a better day is coming for you, when I will come to dwell among you as Emmanuel God in the flesh. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the the temple of stone and wood because it's God dwelling among us, revealing the love of God and laying down his life for our sins. But Jesus Christ said, what you see in me is still not the goal. I will leave you and it's to your advantage that I go away because I will send you the Holy Spirit. And indeed, one of the last things that Jesus Christ did on earth was rip that veil in the temple. And then he ascended into heaven and he poured out his spirit on Pentecost so that the Holy Spirit dwells in the church. God dwells in the hearts of believers in a way that that God has never done before. And that is a new amazing reality in which we live. For instance, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 about the church It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what is the temple? After the ascension of Christ, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what is the temple today? It is the church where Christ is the cornerstone on the foundation of the apostles. We are living stones built into that temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in that temple and he dwells in our hearts. The temple is the church of Jesus Christ wherever it is found and gathered here in this world. So we begin to understand the significance of what is being told to John when he says measure the temple 
and the altar and the worshipers. Cordon off, mark off as belonging to me, my church, says Jesus Christ. That belongs to me and I will protect it. And there is an altar also measured off, specially by me, because now that the temple has been opened up and everybody can come in, through Jesus Christ, every believer has direct access to God. You can come into the Holy of Holies when you are in prayer and stand face to face with God and pour out your heart, bring your cries to Him, tell Him of your fears and your struggles and your sins, and God is there and God will listen. You are in a protected area. As a believer, you are protected by the love and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are protected from the temptations and seductions and sins of this world. As we sang together in Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. We may also think of Romans 8, where we read that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we have here in our text is virtually identical to what you find in Revelation chapter 7, where we read about the 144,000 who are sealed by the Spirit of God. God seals his people. God puts a wall of fire around the church and protects her from the harm of the world. Now, does that mean that we never get into trouble or that we never sin? Of course we do. Every person in this room, no matter how close your relationship with Jesus Christ is, we are all sinners, sometimes disgustingly so. Sometimes to the point that we feel as if we don't even have faith anymore. Still we're protected. We have an altar. We have direct access and we can stand before God and pour out to him the confession of our sins. And they are washed away, cast through the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. And we are made right with God and we are safe. We understand too that even the present reality of the spirit dwelling within us is a prediction, a foretaste of yet the perfect day when God will dwell among us in the new Jerusalem. Then we won't sin. Then we won't weep. And there will be no tears. And there will be no death. And no attacks by Satan. Now, could we be sure of all this? Can we be absolutely sure that God is a wall of fire around us and will protect us no matter what? You know, if there's one thing that we can be certain of on earth and in heaven for time and eternity, it is this. That each one of us can say in our heart, God loves me. God gave his son to die for me. My Lord Jesus Christ, he died on the cross of Golgotha, but he ascended to heaven. He took the scroll of history he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's running my life and running this world. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in my heart to make me his bride. 
And keep me pure and holy until the day that Jesus Christ returns for me, for us. We are safe. Christ said in Matthew 16, when Peter made the good confession, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hell can crash at the doors of the church. Hell can come smashing and trampling over your life. It has no power over you. Not when Jesus Christ surrounds you with his love and his care. We understand, of course, brothers and sisters, that these good things don't simply happen because Jesus Christ says they happen. He also shares with us his gifts and his blessings to ensure that it happens. He has given us his word and his spirit, and it is that preaching of the word that is our front line of defense in our daily lives. He's given us the communion of saints. Anybody in this room who belongs to the communion of saints, who belongs to the congregation, you know that if you are in trouble and you are straying away, there are people who love you and care for you so much, they'll come after you. They said, don't step out of the line. Don't leave the grace and the love of God and get tangled up in the pursuits of this world where you're just going to get trampled on by the devil. You're going to be trampled on by the world. Come back, repent, and be right. We also have the blessing of the office bearers, brothers and sisters. Paul made clear in Ephesians 4 that one of the greatest gifts of the ascended Christ is the office bearers who take care of the congregation so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but kept on the right path to live to the praise and the glory of our God. As a church and as a congregation, we have every blessing to dwell within the peace of Jerusalem. Take a hold of it. Take a hold of that little scroll that the angel is holding out to you, the gospel. Take it and eat it. It is sweet to your mouth because you know the joy that Jesus is your Savior. He died for your sins, and he gives you his spirit to be able to live to the praise and the glory of God and have absolute power in the face of the evil one. Are we weak or are we strong as Christians? There's no question about it. We are strong in Jesus Christ and can face any obstacle also when it comes to sharing the gospel. That brings us to our second and our final point, and we read in our, further in our text, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. In the Greek, it is stated in the strongest possible terms that the outer court is excluded. It's not measured, it's not cordoned off, It does not enjoy the protection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this outer court? Not an easy question, and part of it is the complication of what temple are we talking about here? For instance, the temple that Herod built in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ had what was known as the outer court of the Gentiles. And it is attractive to think of that. But when you look at the book of Revelation as a whole and you see that there are so many references and so much pulling in of Old Testament images and and promises and prophecies, 
we are more inclined to think of the temple in its simple and, and most original terms. The temple that Solomon built, or even the tabernacle itself. And if you picture that, and probably we can all do that quite easily because most of us have grown up with talk about the temple. You know the temple is a building. And the building's got two rooms with a veil in the middle. And in the one part, God sat. That was his dwelling place. And then the other part had the altar of incense where the priests could be. And then outside the building, there was a court, the outer court, where there was the altar of burnt offering. And that's where the Israelites could come. They could only come as far as that until our Lord Jesus Christ came and made the perfect sacrifice for sins, ripped open the veil, ascended to the right hand of God, and presented his blood as the perfect payment for our sins. Now, the New Testament Israelite, the believer, is not in the outer court. You enter the building. You go past the altar of incense, you go right to the the holy seat of God in prayer, you stand face to face with God, and you can talk with Him. You can have fellowship with Him. And you can know the joy of the salvation which He gives. Which means that the outer court, after the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, really doesn't mean the same thing anymore as it did in the Old Testament. Except maybe for those who are left behind. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is the warning that within the church there are those who are lukewarm. Those who have compromised their faith and those who are complacent. We read, for instance, in the letter to Odyssea in Revelation 3, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The lukewarm. People who may belong to the church. People who make profession of faith. But in their hearts have not genuinely believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Who are not so overwhelmed by Christ. They want to commit their whole life to Him. They stand in the outer court. They have not penetrated and come before the face of God. Because they have not genuinely and completely embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. These people are in extreme danger. Brothers and sisters, there is an admonition and an exhortation for us here today as well. We may all sit here. We may all consider ourselves members of the church. We may all think that we are on the road that will take us to the new Jerusalem, to an eternity with God. But it is not so unless you personally say in your own heart, Jesus is my Lord. I love and I adore Him. He died for me. It's the most important thing in my whole life that Jesus died for me. It's my joy. It's my privilege. I want to live for His praise and glory. I want to come to the altar. I want to pray to God and be in His presence and know that it's right with us and know that it is well 
it is well with my soul. We read that the outer court has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now we need to understand something else about the Old Testament temple with the outer court. And for that matter, the city of Jerusalem in which the temple stood, the holy city. The outer court and the holy city also represented the whole world. You see, Jerusalem and the temple was like a a microcosm of the universe and of the world. In this little place, in the Old Testament, in this wee little place, was God among his people. But that's not the way it was supposed to remain. The church was to move over the face of the earth. God was to dwell everywhere, wherever his people are gathered. And the court of the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem pointed to the reality that after Pentecost, the whole earth is holy. It belongs to God. The kingdom advances. The church is being established every place and everywhere. And there is God marking off his people, causing them to be safe. But it is the church itself, it is the believing people who are cordoned off and are safe. But in this world of God, in this holy city of God, there is also Satan with thousands upon thousands, millions of demons, and a whole unbelieving world which stands totally opposed to God. And when you get outside the church, and we're not talking here about physically stepping outside the church building, but when you, when you get outside the, the life of which is sanctified and living to praise and glory of God, you have an unbelieving world. And it's like a, a big steamroller trampling down this earth and everything that is to the praise and the glory of God. And besides Satan attacking the unbelievers, who do you think is his first target? What is he attempting to trample down? It is the weak, the lukewarm, the complacent, and the indifferent in the church. The book of Revelation, particularly in the letter to the seven churches, have pointed out how many church people, because they wanted friendship with the world, because they didn't want to lose their job, they worshiped the emperor, they gave sacrifices to the pagan gods, and they were trampled underfoot by an unbelieving world, by the Gentiles. Similarly today, Satan has his eye on the church. He looks for weaknesses. He looks for the indifferent. He looks for the complacent. Those for whom their money and their career is the most important thing. Or friendship with the world. Or addiction to alcohol and drugs and gambling and pornography. Or simply giving in to the whole philosophy and education system of of our country which promotes evolutionism over creationism as described in the Word of God. And Satan is trampling. Whoever is weak, whoever is not committed to Jesus Christ, will be attacked by him. And many are trodden beneath his feet, and they no longer know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is not very pretty talk. And it's pretty severe. 
It's not nice, is it, to have to hear that within the congregation. We are being challenged. Here, in this place, in this group of people, we are being challenged that we might be lukewarm and we're the primary cannon fodder of Satan. But what are we going to do, brothers and sisters? We're talking here about our salvation. We're talking here about eternity. We're talking about the book of Revelation, which is the wake-up call. Now let's listen. Where do we stand with Jesus Christ? Are we within the protective walls of God's love? Or have we so compromised and weakened in our relationship with Jesus Christ that we're out there in the world ready to be trampled underfoot? Be clear in your mind. Be very clear. And as Moses said to the people of Israel when they stood before the promised land, make your choice. Be clear in your mind. Do you choose life or do you choose death? Do you follow me or do you follow the world? It's absolutely clear in your mind. And the answer has to be, there's only one thing that's important to me. That's to know the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I love him and I adore him. And I believe that with his protection... Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. We must understand, brothers and sisters, that when we stand in a very good relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and we are protected by him, that doesn't mean the world will never attack us. To be within that measuring safety of God doesn't mean that you will never fall into harm. Look at Guido de Bra. It's a young man with a young wife and little kids. He was murdered. He was martyred because of the faith, because he wrote the Belgian Confession, because he preached the gospel and he and evangelized. Go on reading Revelation 11. Read about the two witnesses who proclaimed the gospel. They were slain and laid in the street and nobody picked up their dead bodies. Believers do suffer horribly relentlessly by an unbelieving world. But the important thing to know is also about those two witnesses. They came to life. And we think of what our Lord Jesus Christ, what he said in Matthew 10, don't worry about what people can do to your body, but what they can do to your soul. Hey, the world can take away our job. They can take away our freedom, our property. They can take our lives and spill our blood on the ground, but that is nothing because they don't touch my soul. We're safe. So what if I die? I rise in the victory of knowing I spend eternity in body and soul with my Lord Jesus Christ. So even when we're attacked, we remain strong. We maintain the victory over Satan. We have the hope of life everlasting. Now, one important thing to notice is that our text says this will continue for 42 months. Now we have to do a little bit of math. Book of Revelation loves math, and it's symbolic mathematics, symbolic numbers. 42 months equals what? Three and a half years. It equals approximately 1,260 days. If you read Daniel and Revelation, you read those numbers all the time. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. All the same thing. It has a symbolic meaning. Now, three and a half 
is half of seven. Seven means full and complete. So when you're talking about time and you're using small numbers, seven would be complete history. Three and a half is a half of that. So the first three and a half is the Old Testament dispensation. And the second three and a half is the New Testament dispensation. So 42 months, and you can prove this, especially when you get to Revelation 12, when you read about the woman and the child who kept safe. The 42 months represents the entire time period between Christ's ascension and his return. See, some people like to say these these horrible scenes in Revelation refer to only a, a specific moment in time, perhaps just at the end of the world before Jesus Christ returns. No, brothers and sisters, it is our reality now. It's the world in which we live. It is our world And we've been told in chapter 10, there's no more delay. Christ is coming. He could come tonight. He could come this week. Nothing more has to be done. Only the elect have to be gathered in, and Christ can return. But we are living in that 42 months. We are living in that final stage of history when the world hates the church and relentlessly wants to destroy it. We're seeing that in our country. You know, Christians today aren't just, um, they're not just allowed to exist or maybe people smirk about them. We are under a direct, concentrated attack by our society. Do you know that there are, are people in Canada, printers, publishers, people in the media, who are before the courts, who are being sued were having their names run through the mud because they refused, as a Christian printer, to publish a pamphlet promoting homosexuality. you got politicians. And if you've got a politician like Stockwell Day who says, I believe in a six-day creation, he's mocked and run out of town. There are teachers. There are professors. Professors, if they dare to criticize evolution, they stand to lose their jobs. We live in a hostile world. And there might be some who will say, I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to compromise my faith to remain a professor or a politician or a businessman or whatever. But that is no option. Please, please be clear in your mind. Stand up. Be proud of Jesus. and Show it in your, in your whole life. And understand that under the protection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the whole world, as hostile as it is, it is God's world, and we have the opportunity and the protection to get out there and share the gospel. In fact, ultimately, it's it's not so much a question of whether you can or can't. We can. We know that. The thing is, do you want to? There will be no more delay. This world is ending. The ending is is coming at us full speed and it could end at at any moment. And and you look at our world in the last days. Look at the people that you share a coffee with when you're at work. And at 10 o'clock you sit down with your co-workers. Look at the people in your neighborhood. Look at the man or woman who's beside you at the gym who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That person is going to hell. 
That person is in danger of spending eternity with the devil. Can you keep your mouth shut when you know the time is so short? When you know that Jesus Christ loves you? When you know you have the gospel which is so sweet in your mouth? When you know there's not much time left? How can we stand idly by when we have the light which shines in darkness? How beautiful it would be, brothers and sisters, if all of us could be instrumental in the hands of our God and the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring even one person from the outer court into the temple, to the altar, to bow down and by the grace of God say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Amen.